You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players. And all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. Hello and welcome back to episode 142 of Arsenal Pass. This week on the pod, Brendan's going to explain why you should be a solo Kano main and play nothing else. And I'm actually going to agree with him in this episode. We're going to talk specialists and why playing a single class or a single hero in Flesh and Blood might be the way to go, Brendan. Uh, But how's... (laughs) Aside from that, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Yep. Uh, You just... You can never handle it when I drink from whatever cup I drink from. Yeah. It just gets you you every time. It's a big surprise. I think there needs to be like a, a Twitter page just dedicated to your water vessels, to oh, be honest. Audio listeners are thoroughly confused right now. Um, yeah, I mean, this is an interesting topic we've been talking about for years, and I think that we've started to pull to one side of the argument now, more than we were before, right? It made a lot of sense in the early days of Flesh and Blood to be able to play everything, but I think we see more and more that specialists are um, performing very well and coming out on top. Is it objectively the correct thing to do? I'm not sure yet, uh, but there are advantages, especially as we have this rapidly rotating format that is class constructed. Mm. Well, this week in, in the pod, as we talk specialists, and we're going to present the argument of why you should play only one hero or class, and we're going to completely disregard the other side of the, the conversation. For now, for now, for this week. Um, but yeah, I mean... I guess just quickly, this week in Flesh and Blood, I mean, it's it's true holiday season. This we're recording on the 25th of December in the US. Is that, am I outing you by saying that, Brennan? <laughs> nah. I mean, yeah, I didn't really do anything for Christmas. I actually chose, I chose not to because I was so done with traveling after Barcelona. Yeah. Like I said, I got, I got pretty ill in Barcelona, so that trip really took it out of me. So, yeah, I just took care of the dogs and got some of those Cribus uh, miles in. I did a little seven mile run earlier. Um, what, is, what does that mean for those? Just like, like height, height, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It was nice. Nobody was out there. Tons of tons of animals. Tons of deer's. A few, nice. maybe a few mountain lions out there. I actually got attacked uh-huh. by somebody's dog as well. Happens it was a uh, it was a little corgi. So he knew, <laughs> he knew who the apex pred was. Um, no, but he actually went after me, bro. I don't know what happened, but he totally missed. Like he went to bite my leg and totally whiffed, and I was like. <laughs> Uh, that's like the time I saw Dante Del Fico try to uh, fight with Gabe Shear. What do you Actually, mean? Oh. It reminds me of that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> let's get into the news, Brennan. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, again, just happy holidays to all. Um, for me, aside Australia, it's now the 26th, so just chilling out. And we've had really nice weather here, Brennan, actually, apart from a couple of storms. So um, it's been nice. Going to get out for another walk today and enjoy oh, yeah. sunny Total Christmas down under. Over here. Total opposite. Yeah. Today was like the first sunny day and it's still cold, um, but we just it's just been like rainy and cloudy and rain. that sucks. Yeah. It sucks. I actually have a question for you. Since the off season, I actually checked my calendar because I'm I'm challenged when it comes to dates, but, but mm-hmm. next, when we next record this pod, it will be 2024. Um, do you have Correct. any New Year's resolutions? Uh, no. No, I don't. I don't. My, my New Year's resolutions to continue to do what I did in 2023, which I think was a, a fairly productive year all all things considered so mm-hmm. awesome wow news yeah uh, do you want me are you are you fishing for the the question back absolutely not yeah i didn't think so all right let's get into news and i think we've got to lead off with two new heroes in flesh and blood have been revealed we've got from an adult hero betsy skin in the game 
and Olympia Prizefighter. And then their young counterparts, just Betsy and just Olympia. I don't know, first thoughts on seeing these two new heroes. We've got a new, a brand new Guardian hero and a brand new Warrior hero. Untalented, just pure goodness Guardian and Warrior heroes, Brennan. Hmm. I was, um, I mean, it's cool. Like, I mean, we're waiting to see the heroes. I know some people are speculating on what the last hero might be. <clears throat> we might have a good idea what that well, is. Well, there's three. There's three more heroes to come. Well, I saw you who I was like, I wonder what the Arsenal Pass hero could be. You'll never guess it. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, Betsy skimmed the game. I really, like, Betsy is much more interesting to me than I think Olympia Prizefighter. We were just talking about that. I don't know about mm-hmm. mechanically, but, yeah. The Olympia Prizefighter. I'm not a big critique of art, but the the art on this just looks uninspiring to me and i don't want to offend the artist but i was surprised to see it i don't know i don't know it just looks like it looks out of place for flesh and blood to be to be honest we'll start with the art what do you think of the new borders uh that come with these like with these heroes we see bitsy okay and those Olympia yeah those are actually sick those are sweet <laughs> yeah i think that those are awesome I mean, one of my favorite things about flesh and blood cards is the the regional borders uh i remember you know back in the day especially the technologists they kind of alluded to this this secret um but nowadays, I guess it's a bit more on the nose. I don't know. I think it looks really cool. It's it's honestly one of my favorite things about Flesh and Blood cards are the borders. They're they're really yep, interesting. The region borders. Yeah. Yeah. Now so th- these are you know they come from the arena. So they have the this new arena border basically. Um, so I guess in a way a new region kind of in Flesh and Blood, right? Like I, I guess it's more of a sub region. But um, although uh, drop us down in the comments, is this a region or is this a sub region? The the arena, but I think this border with the um, the kind of the domes, the shields, and the corners, and you know what looks like quite a you know, it's a showcase almost the border. Like it's almost like the curtains being drawn on on the hero on the cards um, that I'm sure we will see. So I, I think it's really cool. Um, I mean, at least we're seeing it at the moment on the heroes. You know, obviously the the naming convention where the domes are currently is where the cost and the pitch value would go on a normal card. So I assume this is just hero based this border. Mm-hmm. So it'd be interesting to see. Obviously, given the region the heroes from the border that is assigned to them, if they ever wanted to do something with cards, what that would look like. Um, I, I I know you know you look at something like a hero border is always specific, right? So Kasai obviously a warrior, but. Kasai has the that's the draconic wait not the draconic the um where is where is Kasai from um where's uh where's Kano from where's Kano from and there's some Volcor <laughs> yeah same the Volcor border thank you thank you the Volcor border uh, so obviously you know you don't have Volcor cards but I do wonder if you ever see a translation to two non-hero cards and what they could look like but obviously the main thing is you get the regionality of the hero or where they're from where they hail from and then the, the border and we saw them do some cool things with outsiders you know with the zuri mm-hmm. for, for instance having the the mysteria border um and then the, the change the pits border so as the adult version so yeah I, I think it's cool i think this looks really really cool i think you know i've don't we talked about the art just before we jumped on i i think this art isn't my favorite the last two sets have had a lot of things have looked the same i would say um but i do like that we're returning to three kind of you know we've got guardian we've got warrior we're returning to we've got brute we're returning to heroes to classes that are that are a bit more um traditional in flesh and blood and i think that that lends itself to some of this art in a particular way but yeah i mean betsy's interesting what about the i guess the, the abilities yeah. themselves let's talk about um, it. i think yeah i think betsy's the most interesting so if you haven't seen betsy or betsy's skin in the game uh betsy is a guardian hero with four intellect and 40 health uh, at, at adult it says whenever an attack you control wages you may pay two resources if you do the attack it's plus one and overpower and it's the same text uh, for the young betsy as well mm, yeah that's uh, i find it interesting that you find this one more you know the most interesting because 
my immediate thought that this is actually not so good, but I'm thinking about it more in a constructed context. In limited mm-hmm. evasion is powerful. Um, the extra attack is probably relevant to on hit effects, but I don't know. Paying two for overpower, which is weaker than dominate, and then also getting plus one. I mean, overpower could be almost it could be relatively equivalent to dominate in in limited for this set, but yeah. Um, yeah, it do- it doesn't seem overly powerful to me because you don't have to win the wager like you do with Olympia, but you do have to pay, which is yep. that's a big deal. I mean, that is that's a big investment. I mean, obviously, you immediately get the plus one, you immediately get the overpower, and it might help you force through some of those wagers, which is what a lot of this set is rotating around. So I think this could be a very good limited. I, I genuinely do think this could be very good limited, but I it it seems really unimpressive to me for class constructed. I could be getting ahead of myself. Obviously, I haven't seen the cards, but it's just the first thing I think. Uh, when it comes to seeing effects like this, which it's pretty similar to Bravo, let's be real. Yeah, well, one of the cards we saw previewed, which is this um, Betsy Specialization, which is Bet Big, which is a red uh, majestic attack, attacks for eight, defense three, costs four, and says when this attacks hero, you may wager a gold, might, and vigor token with them. So this is quite interesting, you know, this kind of obviously directly two blues, you pitch your two blues, you play your Bet Big, you wager, and then that triggers Betsy's hero ability you pay the extra two floating resources now you're coming in for nine with overpower off three cards i mean that that is kind of on rate right damage wise slightly below rate even but does have you know if you look at something like glacial um, footsteps for instance but this does have you know on hit effect so i don't know betsy is interesting to me in terms of i'm interested to see what cards we get and yeah it's more from a limited standpoint i would say um when it comes to olympia so if you haven't haven't seen olympia prize fighter and olympia young version uh this is again as a at adult as a 40 uh, health hero for intellect hero it's a warrior hero says the first time each of your attacks wins a wager create a gold token i do agree this is probably no this is good the more each. interesting for constructed yeah each yeah. of your attacks is pretty nuts so it's not even your first attack um no it is it's the first time each of your attacks right First time, each oh, of, first time each yeah, of your so, text, yeah. you're right, you're right, you're right. Yeah, yeah which okay. is nuts, so, so that's that's like, uh, you can activate that. I mean, you could resolve this ability. Triggers. Trigger multiple times in a turn, which is kind of nuts. Yep. And gold tokens are, I mean, they're relatively powerful. I don't know what kind of synergy we're going to see with gold tokens that um, Olympia Prizefire will be able to play. I'm not, mm-hmm. honestly, my knowledge of the current warrior cards that potentially utilize gold tokens that Kasai plays is not very robust. I can't pull it up at the moment. Um, but, like, this hero ability looks quite powerful to me, to be honest. Uh, yeah. Actually, this is the one I would look look at for for class constructed. For limited, I mean, evasion is just inherently strong, so you can pay. Mm-hmm. You can have an underrated hero ability, but due to getting evasion, it can still be very good. And it seems like the limited format is going to be all about wagering anyway. Yeah. I think whenever you see a hero that has uh, a value text printed on it, so Bitsy has like a, a really definable value to it right it's like you pay two for overpower and plus one as your potential right but olympia has this like kind of there seems to be the ceiling is not clear and obviously we haven't seen a lot of cards powerful wager cards i would say that necessarily go with olympia we've seen attack actions you know we haven't necessarily seen cards that necessarily pair with with olympia in a specific way but we did see up the ante which is um olympia specialization it's a warrior attack reaction at blue cost x defense for three and um, it says choose x plus one uh where x is you know the cost you pay for up the ante um it says target attack wages an agility token uh target attack wages a gold token target attack wages a vigor token and then target attack gets plus y attack where y is the number of times the attack is wagered very interesting so obviously if you pay three into this so you two cards you're giving plus three um and you're wagering and the first you're only going to resolve a gold token on one of those well the gold token from olympia on one of those wages 
but it's very interesting i think you know that this cut's powerful it's at blue it's a powerful effect it's very versatile uh it can potentially help you resolve two gold on a turn and like you said like gold is powerful and i think this points to the fact that gold heavy decks want a lot of blues traditionally mm-hmm. to to cash in the value pun intended um but i do think as well that you know having it at blue signposts a little bit about what olympia is potentially going to be about i think in terms of resource base and, and some of the power cards in your deck because don't forget there's some other powerful warrior cards at blue as well you know glint the quicksilver etc like that's not just it's not just something things like a banty, but the, the question is right: is like, is Olympia going to be more attack action based, or is Olympia going to be continue to be weapon based, like every other hero, we've, warrior hero we've seen so far? Mm. That's that's my big question, to be yeah, honest, because I- we've seen a lot of attack actions at common and rare so far with wager printed on them. But are we going to see more non attack actions and more ways to give powerful effects to your weapons and, and push Olympia over the line? That's what's going to be the determining factor of whether how how good this is constructed. I think that's a good question as well. Um, the sort of the weight on the weapon, it feels like, is synonymous with the warrior identity at this point, but it would be cool to see them stray out of that design a bit and make attack actions a bit more relevant. I mean, attack actions have been relevant in warrior before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, like, they've played cards like Command and Conquer, um, I mean, even, like, Nourishing Emptiness at points, so, and Scar for Scar, things like that. So, I mean, it's not like attack actions have been irrelevant in warrior, but usually the, the class identity is based around the weapon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and they haven't. They have been relevant, like you say. You know, we've seen attack action. Uh, e strike is one that's been synonymous with, yeah. with warrior, I think. But they're not necessarily the folk. You know, they're not advancing the game plan of what a warrior traditionally does. They've been there to supplement and help a particular game plan, but they're not necessarily built into the design space and the DNA of what what a warrior is. Which, you know, we might not. See. We've seen. You know, we're seeing warrior attack actions for the first time. Yes, the ones we've seen so far are hybrid. You know, they're brute warrior, guardian warrior attacks. Um, of course, we've seen Wedge Gold as well, <laughs> which is universal and so is technically uh, a warrior attack action. But yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see if we see solo warrior attack actions in the set. That's, that's my big question, actually, to be honest, is will yeah. we see solo warrior attack actions um, in the set? I think they chose an interesting design with this set where it's this, this set is supposed to be more beginner friendly, much more beginner friendly than Bright Lights. Um, I'm not sure if that has been said publicly or... Yeah, no, James has said yeah. kind of about that before, yeah. It's yeah. interesting that, that well, the card design here seems relatively simple and the heroes are relatively simple, but then they also threw in like all these cards create like tokens, which is mm-hmm. not simple. That's unintuitive and requires extra game pieces that sometimes the player doesn't always have. I know you get them the limited packs, but like, yep. I mean, new players that are coming new to Flesh and Blood, like when they're like, oh, create an agility token, they're not going to immediately know what that is. Because even for me, I'm like, oh, I got to remember what these are. And I've been playing Flesh and Blood for three years. Um, mm-hmm. So that's an interesting design choice. I'm actually, right now, I'm not a fan of that. That might change. But yeah, like when I see something like up the ante, I'm just like, oh my God, there's so much like domain knowledge I need to understand this card in and of itself. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I'm excited to see more cards. And speaking of which, actually, we're going to see, by the time we record next week, we'll have two new heroes to talk about as well. Uh, two brute heroes. So one dropping on the 27th. So by the time this pod drops, not sure who's revealing that, but it will be revealed. And then we have our hero reveal uh, on the 29th as well. And so we'll have, what does that give us? We're missing one more hero after that, right? So, and I, I do want to tease a little bit more about our, our reveal and say that uh, we're going we're gonna to show to you a mechanic that hasn't been seen before in Flesh and Blood and as of yet hasn't been seen from any of the previews so far. So super excited to, to show that, Brendan. I think by the time this pod drops, we can say that because we're about to drop it in, in a day's time. So uh, keep an eye out on that. 
other than that, I think that's kind of all, really. Just this is preview season. That's all we're going to be talking about for the news for the next couple of weeks, I think. And this is another massive update from LSS on the offseason about banner suspended and living legend, etc. But we've already had that for December. So um, let's move on. Come on, cook out YouTube comment section. Brendan, I'll throw it your way. Sure. So we're starting off with uh, Code Blue Magic. They say, in last week's mailbag, there was a question that asked if pro players had a responsibility to play in local events. Removing XP qualifications for ELO qualification incentivizes pro to sit out locally of local events. Uh, a random loss to a local player will have a massive effect on a pro's ELO, which is why they sit out of most local events in MTG. I don't think that armories affect ELO. It's just like the pro quest, things like that, right? But pro quests, right? So like, let's say, let's say you're trying to potentially... You know, you're a grinder or you're a, you're on the cusp of being a, a professional player, you know, in terms of just needing qualifications, you know, getting on the gravy train, as they call it. If you are kind of incentivized to maybe keep your, your XP up previously, then you're more incentivized to play like ProQuest and Road to Nationals because they have a 6 XP modifier, mm-hmm. right? So, you, you get high XP. But if that's kind of out the window, then, you know, we did talk last week about kind of not gatekeeping, but, you know, stronger players coming in and, and taking these invites and, and playing all these events. And I guess if you know, the XP is no longer an incentive for them in terms of keeping their XP up. And now they actually risk missing out on invites because they, you know, let's say they go one for the or two, three drop or whatever at the, the, the pro quest, they probably lose like 20 to 30 ELO in some of these cases. So I think this is an interesting question by by Code Blue Magic. Um, I mean, it's not a question, I guess it's a statement, but yeah, I think that's an interesting side effect that I didn't really think about um, last week when we talked about this. Yeah, I mean, I already felt like that was Central side of it. <laughs> that was a part of it. If your ELO was high enough, it was like crazy to play in some of these events. But um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting system. I, I this we have another. I think we have another question, right, Hayden, about you know uh, them removing XP and leaving and uh, purchasing PTIs. So yeah, do you want to go straight to that? Yeah, let's go straight to that. Y- you go ahead and read it off because I'm not on it right now. Uh, great. Yeah, I'm looking for that question. <laughs> um. Okay, got it. This one's from Daniel. Daniel says, hey, guy, hu- hey guys, huge fan. Listen every week. Had a quick question. How can praise be given to LSS with removing the XP path from the Pro Tour when you yourself are just going to pay, uh, pay to qualify path? Well, first off, I have three PTIs. Like Hayden has like four or five, maybe. Or I have six. But yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about why we paid to qualify if we do. Uh, it just seems silly to say... Uh, to say someone is going to 45 armories a week, it's not qualified to play, but buying your way in is acceptable. Thanks. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm I'm definitely at the risk of being... I con- special, can I start? The, well, I would say at the risk of being controversial, okay. I would say that uh, participation and attendance at anything should not qualify you to go into the Pro Tour. That is undermined by being able to pay for it. I think that being able to pay for the Pro Tour does significantly undermine the prestige of it and kind of ruins it being in a sense ruins it being a pro tour that being said it's mega convenient <laughs> and that's why i i will say i ex- i exploit that system when it is there's there's an equation that's going on right should i use my own pti or are ptis cheap enough that i should buy them and if you think it's a system if you are speculating this is a system that won't be around forever which i kind of am then there is a certain price point which just makes more sense to buy the pti and then save up your eternal ptis that last forever yeah, I, I mean, I won't be buying a PTI, personally. I will just cash my PTIs in. I feel confident that I can continue to link up, let's say, invites. I feel pretty confident about that. So if I'm, if I'm missing on a, a pro quest, 
um, or I'm not there in ELO, then then I, I will use a PTI for Worlds. I'm qualified for LA, and I'm not going to go to Amsterdam um, for for work reasons. But I will I will be at Worlds, and you know if I'm not ELO qualified, of course there's no ProQuest, so it'd be ELO or Nationals invite. Um, Nationals are what got me my Worlds invite this year. Then then I would use a PTI, and I you know that's the reason I, I have them. I've kept them and have not sold them. You know I've sold one. Um, otherwise I. <clears throat> I'd be selling them to be honest, but I want to make sure that I kind of have this ability to continue to play the events that I want whenever I want. And I think it's interesting, like the, you know, Brittany, you just talked about kind of the prestige and things like that. Uh, we've had someone top eight a pro tour from buying a PTI. I mean, that's fine. Just That'll so. happen, right? <laughs> like, I mean, that, those kind of, those kind of things will happen. It still doesn't, doesn't take away. Like, I still think that being able to buy your way into the pro tour takes away from what the pro tour is. And I don't think that it, I don't think it should be a thing. I utilize the system. It's very convenient to mm. me. I would be sad if it went away. It would be inconvenient to me if it went away. That being said, like it, now, especially when they've taken away XP, I think that the way you get to the pro tour should be through merit. Buying your way mm. there is lame. Like that is fucking lame. I don't know. I don't. I don't know any other way to put it, but it's just, it's not, it's just stupid. Like it shouldn't really be a thing. It's convenient. A, a lot of people utilize the system and I'm sure there's somebody who has some excuse in this universe to where it's like, oh, this system is good because it benefited me in this way and it led to this beneficial result. But overall, it's just lame. You shouldn't be able to buy your way into the Pro Tour of the World Championship. It definitely undermines the competitive integrity and the prestige of it. I'm buying a PTI. I was pretty... <laughs> I was <laughs> all that said. Uh, I'm in a manifest hypocrisy. No, I, I I was pretty big on your side of the camp. I think when we first learned about this PTI system and the <clears throat> the gifting and the uh, sharing of PTI system, Brendan. But yeah. I think <laughs> one of the things that someone pointed out pretty early on to me, and and I really resonate with this. I think is that it does give an avenue for battle hardens to have a bit more value for PTIs to have some value for the players who do pass them on in terms of, you know, potentially getting monetary mm. incentive for passing on those PTIs, right? Which I think is, that's been a bit of a challenge when, you know, battle hardens don't award, for instance, travel to the event that you might want to use your PTI for, for instance. So, you know, potentially you can sell that PTI, maybe you're already qualified through ELO, for instance, or another form, whatever it is, and you can you can gain some cash to help you travel. And I, I do think... That is kind of a benefit of the system that people overlook sometimes. But yeah, I, I, I do get where you're coming from, Brendan. I get as well kind of this question from from Daniel about, you know, if we're removing XP, then why are we still allowing people yeah. to buy invites? But I, I think, first of all, the the buying and the trading and the whatever it is of PTIs, that is a smaller amount than being qualified through XP. So these, I mean, first of all, the one thing people we haven't talked about is like the PTs are going to become smaller. You know, Worlds was, was, was only 400 players. Like that's uh, going to be a lot smaller this year, right? I, th I thought it was more, but um, yeah, maybe it was maybe it was over four thirty or something. Yeah. Like that's going to be smaller when you haven't got people qualifying on XP as well. So, For sure. Um, For sure. And now we're also moving to a a dual Elo board, which is seventy five instead of the to combined one hundred previously with the top fifty. So, like these events are going to be more prestigious, and yeah, buying. First of all, I think you mentioned this last week, like PTIs are going to go up in value <laughs> in terms of what what people are selling them for. Um, but yeah, I think getting into the events is just becoming harder and harder. And I, I don't disagree. I think at some point we might see that um, PTI sharing system go away. But I have a feeling that from LSS's perspective, it's, it's one they want to keep. Yeah, <laughs> if because if they get rid of it, then all their friends can't play in the Pro Tour. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but <laughs> Let's I, move on. I, so no, I want to talk about the Battleheart thing because I don't think you're sure. wrong, but I think it's a little bit cart before the horse. I would rather fix the compensation and price structure of the battle harden then be like okay it's like this but the pti's kind of compensate for it because the pti selling system is not 
it's not very organic, right? Like, what is the market price for a PTI? And it's just like, it's like all like under the rug. And I don't know, it's just weird. I just think that the whole system is kind of lame. And the Pro Tour should be something that players have to, um, they have to get there by merit. They have to earn it. They have to work mm -hmm. for it and they have to win to get there. That makes the Pro Tours much cooler, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. That being said, right. I'm not going to lose sleep over pe people being able to buy in their way into PTIs. I I'm not. <clears throat> but in the context of them getting rid of XP, it's a really fair question here by Daniel. And I think that mm -hmm. they're right. It's lame. <laughs> from, what I, from what I've heard, you know, just throwing it there, if people are curious, I think the going rate for a PTI has been around 600 to 700 USD. Yeah. Anyway. All Let's right. On. Next one is from Martin Cox. Uh, they say, I approached Renette Nats. Sure was nervous, but I'm glad I did. Even got my Kano hero card signed. Yeah. I mean, mm. again, just reiterate, if you ever see us at events, definitely come up and say hi. It's, it's like the best part of those events <laughs> is being able to talk to people that listen to the pod or consume the content. Um, yeah, it's just a very unique experience. So definitely recommend anybody who is considering it. Definitely come up and say hi. Next one is from um, Milan. Peckney say so UPF UPF is pretty cool. Honestly, if you have a problem that you get attacked from both sides, you should use more communication with the player that's sitting across from you, because if he is doing nothing uh, next, if he is doing nothing, then he's next in line. So he should be he should start hitting them too. Uh, they're not they do not have a whole hand for you, or maybe even to attack at all. I mean, basically saying that like you can use you can stop the issue with UPF with like getting mono attacked by the table by just using politics, right? Yeah. Um, they say keep it up boys looking forward looking for limited heavy hitters uh and your deep dives into it i i want to yeah i want to start on this one look i i think milan uh Pickney here is correct you can use communication my problem with that is that that's a broken system like that's not a good if i have to like use communication and like have to have like some constructed norms that are outside of the game like i don't think that's a good system for yeah. a game i mean like if you've ever played board games where you have to adapt the rules to be like oh this makes the game better but it's not in the rules like that game is that game design is flawed that's like commander is a very unfair format like people can kill you on turn zero people can stop you from playing your deck people can team up on you you can team up on other people that's more interesting but people that's like more interesting. Well, that's that's what we're talking about here too is like there's things i mean they're there is an axis of playing the game outside of the game and people enjoy that. I don't enjoy it. Maybe you don't enjoy yeah. it, but that, I mean, it's just a part of it. So I think that it's the same thing for Flesh and Blood where there's like a politicking aspect that you're managing the relationships at the table to also play the game. Because, I mean, yeah. the gameplay in and of itself, you know, at risk of getting in a lot of trouble is not that interesting in my opinion for UPF. Not yet. So the politicking mm -hmm. and the, like, the relationships and all that, it, it adds another dynamic to it. Because if you're looking for the, the the quintessential flesh and blood experience, you just play 1v1. Yeah. All right. Logan Brushart 2270 says, In 2023, we took a 10,000-foot view to break down some heuristics in the format to see if Kano is a good deck choice. So check that off your bingo card, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> and they just summed up the pod, Brendan. Nice. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Uh, like, after the entire year, it actually did become a good deck choice. So I was actually right the whole entire time. Here we go. All right. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about it today. Uh, Dijer Live. I love how Brennan was off to call truly the BS that signature weapon system is, then reminded himself that they just got a finally a hero spoiler again. <laughs> uh, they say the system doesn't make effing sense, and it's similar to the reasoning Alice used when you haven't figured out the prism deck in Dawn or Starvo loses to Plunder Run. Uh, Brendan, I think you resonate well, with those comments. I would say if you think that I hold anything back to maintain any LSS favor, uh, do you listen to the podcast? <laughs> um, no, it's definitely not holding back. I think that's just, that system is hilariously dumb. Um, 
they I'm not say, saying it's also. necessarily bad, by the way. Yeah, it, it could yeah. be kind, but it doesn't make sense. Period. It doesn't make sense, <laughs> and it leads yeah. to weird ad hoc, just like basically erratas, like you know, the Kasai weapons coming back in. Yeah, they also say kind of to, to to play on that as well. Also, the same logic of Kasai re- receiving her old swords back can be applied for Prism to receive old Luminaris back. Question mark. Question mark. Question mark. <laughs> um, I know that's something that other people said is like, okay, so Kasai is coming back and Kasai is getting weapons. We've got a new Prism, but we're not getting Luminaris. It's a clear. I mean, there's obvious cl- reason for that. Clearly <laughs> broken system that is not. It's not intelligent design. It is just. I don't know. It's like coincidental. It's weird when we have this like rotating format that's supposed to be um i guess very causation based like hero wins more hero rotates out but then you're like oh weapon that was not played at all also rotates out it makes no sense um i think they'll change that system eventually to be honest or maybe they'll leave it in they'll just do this weird kind of like oh by the way luminaris is coming back Woo. Please no. They just make new Luminaris. That's yeah. fine. See? All right. A couple more. And um, I want to round up with a, a pretty good question that's come from Discord as well. So, uh, Ethnic Smoke says, shout out on Arsenal Pass, question mark. I guess I can retire now. Thanks, y'all. Well, we love you, Ethnic Smoke. Thanks for all your work. Uh, someone else, Andrew Zielinski, thought about a new mechanic for Brute. They want to see something like a start of your turn, roll a dice. If you roll a six, your first brood attack gets plus one. If you roll a one, you take two damage. If you've taken six damage this way, your next brood attack gets plus six and reset the damage counter. They're calling it Berserk. I kind of like that. I like something like that for Brew. That's an interesting one. Might be kind of hard to keep track of, but I, I like that kind of idea. Um, yeah, Minion roll, Peter says, I would love... Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Minion Peter says, uh, I would love draft callings, but it's... Yeah, exactly. It, it sort of fixes um, some of the variants, right? Sorry, I got distracted. Now I'm thinking about this brute mechanic. Um, I would love draft callings, but it's so much harder to organize. I mean, having been at um, callings where draft has been part of the format so like singapore uh I, I think it's actually fine to be honest um and I, I think they can do it so and we've seen it at the proquest level they've really at the road to nationals proquest level they've substantiated kind of how to run that so i think they could increase that to a, a full calling of just drafts and I, I think they should and and i think they will also by the way yeah and then brendan yeah question for you it's from clark clark says brendan you were quite critical of the behind the scenes management of casting and also seem to think the final product has room for improvement as well just wondering if you have any examples you point to as the ideal interplay between play-by-play and color or like which casting do your mindset's the highest bar for watching experience i'm going to use a non-flesh and blood example i guess i'll use a flesh and blood example as well i would say uh me hey we're talking about this i think patrick sullivan and oh my god cedric phillips cedric- Yep. like i honestly i was telling him i don't even like patrick phillips i think it's kind of from measure the gathering just yeah, for those who don't know who these, these don't, people are yeah i think it's kind of annoying but um that coverage duo was so good this is the old scg coverage duo um i just thought it was very interesting to listen to you constantly were getting value and you just had a like cedric was so good at parsing the information on board into the average player the you know the player that maybe doesn't know all the cards are being played in the battlefield mm-hmm. and then patrick had really good <clears throat> really good color so i really like that duo in flesh and blood there's a lot of good ones, to be honest, but um, the the safest one I can say, and I think the fairest one, is pr- pretty much like Brian Gottlieb and anybody. Again, Brian Gottlieb is probably the luckiest higher legislative studios have ever gotten because he's also like one of the best card game casters in the world. Uh, I just think he does a phenomenal job every time, and I feel it every time I cast with him as well. He's just very dynamic, very good at both sides, and just very knowledgeable um, mm-hmm. caster. So, yeah, um, and being critical about behind the scenes and for the final product, well. Some of the final product stuff, I think, is like has like an objective room for growth because like it just didn't go the way it was planned to be going. Like uh, the audio at Worlds, that was not yeah. that was not the goal. <laughs> that was not the ideal the ideal situation. So it's just 
I don't know. <clears throat> it's growing pains right now. I think they have to find like the right production company because you got to think about it from the Legend Story Studios perspective. It's actually been pretty tough. They've gone through multiple, <clears throat> multiple production companies starting with CFB, then to SEG, maybe continuing with SEG, but also using like um, other production companies like we did to the World Championships. Like they don't really have that consistent. Um, person to partner with and they're also not doing it in-house so you know kind of constantly switching i mean yeah it's just going to be a process to say the least but in terms of a a duo that i really like i think i have to point towards patrick sullivan and cedric phillips i also really liked um like lsv or reed duke and marshall cycliff i know some a lot of people are critical of marshall because you know he's not he's not pumping value the whole time but i think after listening to limited resources for so long like i was just so used to his voice being a part of like an authority on the game so him plus color was you know i I liked it to be honest yeah translation that's that's all magic the gathering related if you've if you've never seen magic the gathering coverage and honestly magic the gathering coverage has a pretty so good reasonably now. high standard as well and and has for a long time and yeah like you talk about marshall suckliff who is someone who has worked with wizards of the coast and Magic the gathering a lot he's someone who um has been around the coverage booth for a long time and and does that kind of play-by-play piece right and asks really simple questions and sometimes you can get a bit frustrated but also i think his coverage and his commentary is super approachable and i think that's kind of a really good thing and he, he really focuses on the game and on the game and on the players and what's happening at the table at that given time it gives you this oh. kind of paints this picture of not just like the turn that's happening but also the story of the game and the story of the players involved in the game what's happening in the event right now and i think that's that's something that's really hard to capture and i think yeah if you want to ever go and look at some of that you can go check out uh, some of the old pro tours or the, the most recent Honestly, pro tours even they're so good right now like magic coverage right now is so freaking good it's it's insane i know some people yeah. are going to be entrenched magic players and might be jaded and not like the, but i think the, the production and the coverage right now for magic the gathering i don't even play the game is crazy yeah. it's crazy it's like such a high production level um, it's great the problem is the game uh, <laughs> uh and also if you are looking to if you want to hear what brendan's talking about when he says um cedric phillips and pat sullivan then you can go check out some of the old star city games magic the gathering event coverage you'll be able to see those uh, there's a great one there's a legacy teams event where the two of them cover that uh, oh, yeah. i would recommend going and checking out yeah it's really good uh then and legacy then, anything is just it's fire yeah, it's pretty good yeah. it's fire it's good uh and then the last thing i'll say because i'm completely removed from the coverage side of it brendan is that two of First of all, shout out to Ethan and you Savage are not Feats completely removed, by the way. You did some well, casting what, in Taiwan. <laughs> I did some casting. I did some casting, and actually, maybe this is I'm a little bit biased then because I will give a shout out to uh, I will remove my friend Brendan Patrick from this, but I will say Sam Byrne and uh, Ethnic Smoke. Whenever those two are on the mics, uh, I'm I'm there to listen. I think they do a great job of that's kind of the standard. I want to see very in depth detail very good chemistry between the two and um yeah that's kind of what i want to see in 2024 more of that and yeah again just shout out to savage feats i think honestly valises are looking for more things for coverage partners than you know i think they've got one right there so yeah good luck finding more ethnic spokes because someone like ethnic spoke to <laughs> just do, clone him yeah someone like ethnic spoke to actually do coverage he's he's legitimately taking a punt on like doing very well in the event there's not a lot of players yeah. like that whereas sam O'Burn, you know he's <laughs> <laughs> sam O'Burn could be running a upf table somewhere but he could be winning the silver palms. Yeah, I don't know if he's crushing the right. championship. All right. <laughs> uh, main topic time. Let's get in. And we sort of alluded to it at the top of the show. Well, I did. Why you should play one class or one hero in Flesh and Blood. This is the case of being a specialist in 2024. And Brendan, I'm going to lead off with the main question, which is what is a specialist in Flesh and Blood? Someone that plays a single hero. <laughs> a class, I guess. I guess it could be a class. Um, but usually it's a hero, to be honest, because the, uh, the heroes are so different within a class. Think about Ranger, uh, Azalea, 
Lexi, like those are very, very different heroes, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, of course. Riptide, how could I forget? <laughs> like these are very, very different heroes. You usually see a player gravitate towards one's the one or the other. I'll say there's some exceptions, like Brody Spurlock is probably I mean he plays literally everything, but he's probably he's a bit a of a ranger specialist. I he's not a specialist. No, but he's not. <laughs> I think about like Yuki. Yuki is definitely a specialist. She I mean, mm -hmm. obviously she played Icelander, but she, I mean she was playing um like Lexi way before it was a top deck and then really yep. rode off um the back of that deck to get a lot of success and then transferred over to Icelander and you know is now specializing in that hero. Well, we'll see what she moves to next now it's been living legend. Yeah, Yuki played Icelander at Canadian Nationals two years ago as well. So, you know, I think Yuki is someone I would refer to as like a semi-specialist. They're like a, they're, or they're a hybrid specialist. They, and that this is, this is something that we're probably going to get to at some, you know, through this podcast, through this main topic. But I think this idea of someone who is a specialist in two classes or two heroes uh, is actually in a really strong position for 2024. And I would say that I'm going to refer to them as like hybrid specialists or semi-specialists in two different heroes. I kind of want to, one thing I want to, challenge on what you said is you said you know specialist is someone who plays like one hero one class i want to say i think a specialist in the true terms is someone who understands deeply one hero one class and plays that class majority of the time that's what i think i want to throw out as the definition and then i'll i'll, I'll let you either agree or disagree with yeah that. well i think it right i mean if someone literally just plays one hero usually they're bad at the game unless they're sam sutherland um, yep, yes nice. <laughs> <laughs> i think that that's he's like the only ex i guess kale's kale did kale's pretty good i mean kale like literally only plays bravo kale kale is more of a specialist specialist than sam sutherland kale played bravo in the living legend format sam sutherland played uh played starvo he did not play yes. ash so but sam sutherland is one of calling with his uh, respective specialist uh here and a nationals mm. sorry kale well <laughs> kale's hero sucks so that doesn't help <laughs> okay okay no i think that's good cool i think it, yeah it's someone who i think a specialist is someone who really deeply understands the hero at a, at a high level i think as well because you can you know you're gonna have players who play the same hero at an armory every week and I think you're on that could be a pathway to becoming a specialist. But I think for the purposes of what we're going to talk about, which is in 2024, I really think that specialists are going to have, they've already been, I think 2023 is a big year for specialists. I think we've seen that and even 2022, but I think we're going to see even more so in 2024 as the hero pool expands. And I think if you want to be a specialist in a hero, you really do have to deeply understand that class or hero. And I think the other distinction I'll point out is you kind of already alluded to it. Well, actually, you spoke about it directly is like, Heroes have different playstyles, even if they're the same class. You know, you talked about Azalea and Lexi and Riptide being three very different playstyles. And I think a specialist isn't necessarily at the start we say, oh, they're a class specialist, you know, they're a guardian specialist or an illusionist specialist or they're a ranger specialist. But between those heroes now within those classes, because of the way Alice has designed the game, especially with talents involved, actually those heroes don't even necessarily have a lot of crossover. And so a specialist is often more hero based than class based, I think, now, to be honest. Um, I think because of the playstyle thing. And I think the last thing I want to throw out is, Brendan, do you actually think that a specialist can be more playstyle driven than hero driven? I, I try to think about it. Um, I just, I don't really see it permeate that way. Like I haven't run into, we haven't run into too many people who are like, cause like, what would you call it in flesh and blood as well? So there's, there's like an archetypical uh, description problem where it's like, you don't really have a controller or an aggro player, but we yeah. can use aggro cause aggro is definitely kind of an archetype in flesh and blood. I don't know any aggro players, <laughs> to be honest. I guess they exist, but um, yeah. I don't know. There's definitely styles of decks, I think. Like, you know, Icelander is a very particular kind of hero. Um, mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of, like, I mean, I feel like Icelander, Olden, like those kind of decks would go a bit more hand-in-hand -hand than something like, you know, Icelander and Fi. 
Um, but yeah, generally it's not arch- it's not based off archetype. Usually, it's just based off uh, hero. Not really a playstyle thing. I mean, wh- yeah. how would you describe it if it was playstyle? And do you think that? What do you think to your question? Um, I think there is playstyle because I think, but it's not in the traditional term. Like you said, it's not like oh, there's control specialists and aggro specialists and mid range specialists. But I think there is players who gather an affinity for a particular way that heroes win games or their repeatable game plans. And I'll point to someone that's a, that's a friend of mine, and maybe that I know this because I'm close to them, right? So I can see it. I can see the kind of way they gravitate towards playstyles. But someone like Nick Butcher, he always gravitates towards this like value kind of game plan for or like a game style from like a, mm-hmm. and it's not like the classic like michael hamilton like well, math game yeah plan. i feel like it's michael like, hamilton is definitely like an archetype of of deck for sure well. that's the yeah. math thing but like i think with with nick he's like looking for like incremental value and in things he's mm-hmm. looking for ways to like edge through and then like have this like final kind of form of a game plan and i've seen that with every deck he's like built or played they always have this kind of like similar kind of like okay my cards have represent good value there's good consistency they trade well and then i have this kind of way where i have this like inevitability in my game plan he he did it with his ultimate decks he did it with his drama decks um working with aaron so i I don't know and and i've seen it with like someone like even like yuki i think as well like yuki kind of has like yuki really likes to be able to like from what i've seen and watch yuki play Yuki likes to have like this combo kind of aspect to her decks in some way, shape, or form. Like in terms of like this power, like nest. I watched back the um the deck tech that you did with with Yuki on like an earlier Lexi build. Mm-hmm. I think it was a bit more ice dominant. And Lexi uh, Yuki talks about kind of like this this almost like crux to the deck where like you have this like power engine that can kind of like find a point in the game to explode for damage. Um, not Yuki's words, my words, but like kind of what Yuki's talking about in this kind of like engine of the deck, the core of the deck. Uh, and I, I think I saw that with like watching her play Icelander as well and I don't know I've seen this with like other players yeah. as well kind I mean, of, watch her play they limited. gravitate towards like <laughs> it's literally yeah, all well engine, exactly yeah all engine based it's <laughs> she literally she won off of a single card in her deck in all yeah. six matches <laughs> like it's crazy yeah and I think people gravitate towards those things that that's that's why I kind of say when I say specialists and play style I think you know rather than being like oh they're a ranger specialist I think it's more like well they're a azalea specialist and they gravitate gravitate towards this kind of play style and i wouldn't be surprised to see them become a semi-specialist or a hybrid specialist in multiple uh different heroes but those i think those heroes will often have really similar overlaps in gameplay patterns or design philosophies and i think that really benefits them as a specialist as well so i guess what i'm trying to say is i think that it's not class-based it's hero-based and also within that when people change to different heroes because either the hero sucks and they have to for that reason or the hero gets living legend or whatever or it's just not well positioned and they move to something else i think often you'll still see overlap there for the most part i've seen specialists move to play things that are very different um but i think for the most part you see them kind of stick to to that kind of wheelhouse mm-hmm. agreed okay I guess we kind of talked a bit about some examples of specialists as well. Um, there's been a lot of success of specialists last year as well. You know, you already talked about Sam Sutherland. He won a national championship. He won a calling. He yeah. top aided uh, another calling. Most of them, actually. I think I think most of the callings in the larger tournaments were won by specialists. Thinking about like the recent Dallas calling is won by Geek. He's been on Jeremiah yep. for how long? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Same with Justin Q. Justin Q. Azalea, yeah. kind of specialist as well. Won, won uh, Taiwan. Um, you know, I don't know much about Alex, uh, who won Worlds. I'm not sure if he's been a five player for a long time or what that kind of looks like. Um, I'd heard that maybe he is a, a bit of a five player, but I look at someone like you know Aaron Shantz as well, who top edited I think like three or four callings this year plus Worlds. Uh, a my specialist. You know, we, we've we've seen this. I mean, Michael Fing is. Okay, Michael Fing is an ultimate specialist. I know he played. He moved to Lexi, but like he was an ultimate specialist. Uh, Michael Fing is the. He, 
he is hilarious. He is literally Michael Hamilton as well. <laughs> like, they literally they talk the same. They play the same kind of decks. Like they have the same exact approach to Flesh and Blood, which is the value oriented. And I actually think that those guys are the opposite of specialists because. I honestly don't even think they see their hero when they sit down to play the game. They just see the numbers. Uh, and I think that it just happens that Oldham has the best math, happens that the Guardian cards have the best math as they transition to Bravo, and same thing with Lexi. So, I mean, those guys, yeah. Do you want to explain a little bit more about that? Like, what is this kind of, for those that maybe haven't, you know, yeah. heard the, we did, a, we did a podcast episode, I want to say That's like a, a year ago, ago now, maybe yeah. even longer, with, with Michael Hamilton, um, not long after he won US Nationals with Icelander, I think, talking about kind of, this different way to look at deck building and playing, which is a yeah. lot more math-driven, value-based. Do you want to explain a little bit about what So let's is? talk about Wounded Bull to start it off. So Wounded Bull is a three for seven attack uh, that blocks for two from Welcome to Wraith, and then it gets plus one if you have less life. So if you have less life, it is it attacks for eight, like I said. So they call it two card eight because you pitch one card and you play this card. So you've lost, you're down two entire cards. Doesn't matter if it's, you know, you don't want to get caught up in like blue, yellow, red, or like any kind of like pitch color values like that. Just think about it. Two card eight. That's all. Now go try to find that in the rest of the cards that exist in Flesh and Blood without jumping through hoops. You won't. You won't because it's, it's fundamentally above rate. It's hard to hit that value of two card eight without jumping through significant hoops. Like in your mm. pop-off turns on Briar, we have a CMH set up and like all this other beat. Yeah, you might hit it, but there's no other just vanilla play that hits that. And they do the same thing with Bravo and, and Oldham, but they have, um, again, two card eight. Like a, a two card eight is like any of the four cost attacks in Guardian, the red ones. Um, they have on hit effects as well. They call it two card eight because they play it with tunics. So every every tunic cycle, so every three turns, they're able to play something like a two card eight, um, which is just such a, it's so much value um, for so little effort compared to what these other decks are trying to do where they're having these like off turns and on turns. Like their decks are just consistently presenting above raid damage. Uh, and that over the course of a game, if you do that every single turn, you will win the game much more often than you would if you weren't doing that. So less of these like peaks and valleys or, you know, peaks and valleys of power, mm. but more just like the fundamental power of the deck is quantitatively just above rate. Yeah, it's like slightly, if you draw a graph, you're saying peaks and troughs with a lot of other decks, right? But if you draw an average damage line across that, you're saying that the theory is they play a deck that has a straight line that sits, or a horizontal line that sits just slightly above that average damage line, or, yeah. you know, at and least reasonably above that Even the defensive line. values of the deck, right? So, like, mm -hmm. I, like I yep. talked about with um, with Wounded Ball, Wounded Ball blocks are two. Well, I mean, Michael Hamilton's theory was if you ever block with, and this is obviously hyperbolic, but if you ever block Wounded Ball, you've already lost the game. So you would never block with that card. The card effectively has no block value. Obviously it does, and you can't block with it in niche scenarios, but the Draw idea, yeah, the <laughs> idea is that you do not block with that card. You you always get the eight value out of it and they do the same thing with defensive cards in the deck so they're playing zero for four defense reactions because they are one card block four so that isn't as equivalent to like an attacking card that would attack for four you know defense reactions are a bit more limited but they're still they're just going for the value a lot of the cards will block for three mm -hmm. because when they think about a turn cycle which is both attacking and defending they're adding up the value of the attack so you have two card eight on your attack but then you also block with two cards on your on your opponent when your opponent attacks you so now you add plus six to that eight and you're at four card 14 which is not bad and especially if you're working with like a five card hand you your quantitative value of your turn cycle is just so high and you're not jumping through hoops to get there yeah and i think the key word you said earlier is consistency as well <laughs> the reason that these strategies are powerful is consistency because you have the ability to defend well you have the ability to attack well you can do the same you can replicate the same game plan over and over again often these these will come with 
either weapons or they'll come with on hit effects or they'll come with disruptive elements as well so um yeah I, and i think that just tying this back to kind of being a specialist is like you pick heroes that sit in that warehouse because you are a specialist in a particular kind of game plan i think and um, I think we've seen other players do that. We've seen players who, you talk about aggro players, right? But you've seen players who are specialists in like explosive damage based decks, you know? And I think about Rune Blades in particular. Um, I think about, I, I think in the past I would have been like, ah, I feel like maybe someone like um, like Pablo or even Matt Folks has been kind of in that that kind of camp. Pablo obviously moved to being like a Guardian player and yeah. I think he played a bit of Jerome as well. I think so. both those players, <laughs> I think both those players, like those players, so ba- Pablo is a bit more of a specialist and I think he has like affinity for decks. I think Matt Fox is literally just the best deck player. I think he would, he, it just, I think he would just play the best deck no matter what, um, which is not a bad thing. Like if you have the versatility mm-hmm. to do that, that's a very powerful skill to have. But Pablo, out of the two players, Pablo's the only one I've seen play what I, what looks like maybe not the best deck in the room and do very well with it where Matt Fox yeah. is very much trying to find like just the best deck in the room. And he also evaluates the decks in a similar way that Michael Hamilton, Michael Fang do. We're looking for that quantitative value. Um, maybe yeah, it's, it's more on the attacking. Yeah. It, that by yeah. the way. Yeah. We talk about it like, Oh, Michael Fang, and Michael Hamilton do this. No, everybody does this. This is, this is how you play flesh and blood at a high level. I, I think the one thing, the reason that this kind of play style and they've been synonymous with it because you know, they're, they're two people have had a lot of success kind of, enacting this and like you said they talk the same they kind of have a very similar outlook on the but also the genesis decks, of it to an extent like you can you can For make sure. the argument that it was it was understood in the early days but not to it wasn't as strict right where they like everything they do is predicated on this concept and mm-hmm. they've really shown the example that you can build your entire deck your entire game plans based off this and you will have a lot of success like it is just the most powerful thing you can do in flesh and blood and you take that and you in combination you have a uh, deterministic combo also in your deck and then boom you have like like how do you beat that deck <laughs> the deck wins every turn cycle and has a deterministic combo <laughs> it's crazy and it's easier like, that's yeah. the thing i think people forget about and we can talk about this with specialists as well. And this is where specialists get a bit of an edge. It's like you don't get to divide. You don't have to divide your time or divide your effort because like this, if you play this very simple game plan, it's very repetitive. It's very, um, it's easy to replicate. It's all about kind of just eking out the best value of a turn cycle, right? For instance, as opposed to, okay, I have a deck that can, um, that needs to set up this like kind of combo. But then in the meantime, it has to find a way to get there by being defensive. So I have to survive on my life totals, get to a particular end game and I need a particular set of cards as opposed to, well, I just need to keep life totals about the same. I need to be slightly, you know, I just, it gets slightly hit because I eke out damage and value. And then eventually I win because my deck is just more consistent. Like that is easier to do. Like that is just straight up. And that's why that kind of like thought process is all, consistency has always been the king in flesh and blood, honestly. Like you just, you look back through all the formats. We've talked about this before. Consistency is always king. But it's just also easier as well. Like there has been some really powerful decks. Like if I look at something like even even like Viscerai combo, right? Scalata combo. Like that deck was super powerful and it was like fairly consistent. But you did have to adapt your game plans depending on what you're playing against. And like you didn't just get to say I do the same thing every time because you come against Prism and it's like no, I actually need a different game plan otherwise I can't beat this deck. And mm. there is ways to attack these consistent decks and it's to have atypical game plans is to not do the thing that they want you to do is to make their defense reactions crap it's to make their attack reaction attack their five card hands terrible because they can't utilize their five card hands but that as a concept is kind of hard to understand anyway kind of sidetracking a little bit but i i think you know play styles anyway and um the value that 
specialist gain out of play styles is actually pretty significant. Yeah, I actually think Eviscerai was like crazy consistent. A few reasons. Starts in play, stays in play, equipment, which is key to the combo. Also, you have his For sure. fucking tutor in your deck and become the Arknight, which is just like, go get anything you want. And it's just nuts. Um, yeah, I mean, you're right. You would have, you can't do like the, the Giga combo every single time, but um, that deck, I feel like that, yeah, I feel like they ban Scalata. Well, obviously Scalata is a bit toxic. Maybe you can draw half your deck and you actually... <laughs> Oh no, you actually get to have a little fun playing the game. But yeah. <laughs> um, the deck is ultra consistent with that. I mean, Become the Arc Knight was maybe one of the cards that they could have hit if they didn't ban Skalata because it was so freaking... Like, you could grab so many different things in so many different scenarios. That was just one of the funnest toolbox cards. I remember playing Blitz, sorry to tangent, in the Combo Viscerai. And, like, I mean, I went through it with plenty of good players yourself uh sasha matt fox we were testing a lot back in the day and i remember we would just we'd be on tabletop simulator and we would draw become the arc knight and we just lay out our hand and we'd go through all the decision trees because they would be freaking wild because you yeah, could you so could many. like chain into it's just crazy into multiple things and, and look don't get me wrong that was a consistent deck but ultimately do you know what's more consistent i have blue cards that block with three and swing my anathos with four yeah true the weapon yeah i mean the weapon <laughs> is just so critical to it like having this weapon yeah. that creates a floor where like let's say you have a four card hand you block for nine on your opponent's turn with three cards and you swing your weapon which is four plus a frostbite like it's a pretty good exchange for you like as your floor it's not bad all right this is the question well i'll ask a question to you i guess what are the, why, why be a specialist like what are the benefits of being a, a specialist in flesh and blood <laughs> because it's uh the format is rotating pretty fast fast these days the sets are coming out i mean relatively fast i mean it's just so many new heroes so many different strategies the card pool is expanding uh drastically so there's just more to have to master and it requires more time at this point and i think that the the player base is so much better than it used to be and that's a big part of it it's not just the card pool it's not just the rotating heroes it's really the player skill has gotten so high that i think that you just unless you have an ungodly amount of time and talent by the way not just time and talent it is hard to cover your bases on every single possible hero and be a true master of it i think it's better to be a master at one thing or a couple things and then bring ideas together with a group and through that group determine what the best deck is and of course like you don't even have to be a specialist with the hero you can be a specialist in the testing group but then ultimately play a different deck but you're bringing a unique and important perspective to the group and through the group's testing you go through a deductive reason you figure out what the best deck is and then maybe you play maybe you maybe you're the person that brought lexi to the group but you end up playing Jermai because you guys realize it's the best deck that's an important angle to have in a testing group yeah i think you kind of hit on time benefits and i think that's honestly one of the biggest ones for me of like why i think specialists succeed is that you can't test everything you literally can't like you say and if i'm gonna dedicate my time well if i can find what i think is the more powerful thing in the format or just kind of from a standpoint is like something that i know really well and i can just dedicate my time to figuring out the rest of the format figuring out my matchups figuring out my card selection rather than actually figuring out what friggin hero and playstyle my movements play and then i have to learn that playstyle and hero don't worry about it i already know that right i already know that i am someone who plays like um slow defensive decks that eek advantage or i'm someone who plays dash or i'm someone who plays dromai or whatever and then i just 
and make sure that I have the right setup for that format. I think that is really, really powerful. You save time as well. Um, so one of the things I think is actually really big is that you get the opportunity to like really dive deep on things. You get to be like, hey, what about this card in this deck as opposed to like you can never get to that. If you were saying up here, if you're saying that, as Brendan likes to say, the 10,000 foot view to start with and you're trying every hero and trying to understand how every hero is positioned in a format, you never get the chance or you don't get enough time to be like, hey, what about this like one card? What does this one card do in this matchup? Or if I tweak my game plan slightly to play in this specific way in this matchup, what does that do? And I think that's where specialists get so rewarded is they get the opportunity to get the time and they, they have the ability to actually get into the nuance of that, which if you aren't a specialist, like it's really hard to get to that point, I think, unless you've got infinite amount of time to dedicate to the game. Even then, you might not have the talent, <laughs> to be honest, like to play everything at the highest level. Like time is only a Fair time enough. is a limiting function. Like it might time not might might not be and most likely isn't your bottleneck. I know a lot of people are just like, oh, like the only reason they're so good is because they play more than me. They don't have as many responsibilities. That's the most bullshit thing I've ever heard in my yeah, life. People who say that, you're wieners. Don't say that. It's it, yeah, like it's not always often. It's actually often isn't time. Often it is also a function of talent. But people are just ignorant of that because they haven't been able to put the time in. But you don't have infinite time. That that I mean that is just a fact for a lot of people. So specializing does help mitigate that limiting factor. It's true. That said, Brendan, if I had more time to prep for Worlds in uh, 2022, I probably would have top edited. <laughs> my God, bro! Yeah, dude. If my uh, at nationals, if my if my draft pod just knew how to draft, <laughs> I would have crushed. Uh, I think mastery in the mirror is something that specialists really gain the advantage of as well. Mm. you i think if you're a specialist you've spent more time with the hero you've spent more you've probably played more mirror matches just naturally as well and honestly one of the key things about mirror matches one thing is the theory as cards change a good example of this is like the ultimate mirror was like played in a very particular way and then vambrace got printed um and vambrace termination and then anathos was played and then the matchup actually changed significantly and so players who are able to adapt to that gained advantage but also just having a lot of experience understanding how to trade value in that matchup gave Alton players who had been Alton specialists, the advantage in that mirror match massively. And that's what kind of being a specialist can give you is this mastery in the mirror. It was the same for Dromai players. It was the same for um, maybe not Lexi players to an extent, I think, because that matchup was not quite as skill determined as some other mirror matches we've seen in the past. But I do think there is this kind of aspect of mastery in the mirror to a degree. Um, next one I'll throw at Brendan, I think, is like cost savings. And this is like a real one, I think, is really, especially if you're a grinder, especially if you're kind of floating around that kind of you know you want to play this game but you you don't want to be investing huge amounts into the game i think the cost saving of being a specialist and playing one hero means that new product comes out i just buy the cards for my class i just buy the cards for my hero um or my two heroes whatever it is maybe i'm a semi-specialist and i think the cost saving is actually a pretty legitimate uh a pretty legitimate piece of it honestly yeah yeah i mean that's it's a it's an interesting aspect of it because yeah i don't know <laughs> It just hasn't been something that has limited me quite yet because we've been so deeply entrenched in the game. Also, like, I think that the ultimate goal is to pick up a sponsor. And, yeah. So, like, if you're a pro player, I think the ultimate goal is to pick up a sponsor uh, that is also a card dealer, and then they can provide you with the deck so you can kind of just play whatever you want. But, yeah, card availability is an issue and will continue to be an issue because it is an eternal game, and we have multiple sets come out per year. Yeah. So Yeah, um, you're talking about, like, the 0.1%. The, the but like, I'm saying it's the it's the goal. Yeah, yeah, we, for sure. We for don't sure. even have that. <laughs> we don't even have that. But that that is that is definitely the goal to mitigate that. But obviously, you got to get there. So, yeah, for sure, that is a non-zero aspect to it is card availability. Yeah, I really, I really think it is. Um, 
And the last, I think, when it comes to benefits of being a specialist, honestly, is like, this is one that I think I really resonate with this year is like the lock-in factor for events. Yeah. It's like knowing what you're going to play and not being swayed by all these sort of like all the external noise, I think, because you just, you're like, okay, this is the hero play. This is what I've specialized in. This is what I'm working on and, and building with. And especially when maybe you aren't working with a team particularly, I think this is of massive benefit. But even when you're working with a team, you can also leverage other things so it's like okay three weeks out i've been working on this but actually maybe there is a default i could take because the team's locked everyone asked the team but me who aren't specialists have locked on this other hero i probably still have enough time to gather information but if not like i have my hero locked like i know what i'm playing i've been working on it it's the hero i've always played i'm locked and that that is kind of i'm soft locked and that is a great place to be i think honestly and in, in kind of the future of flesh and blood yeah. is you know the, the the game changes a lot things living legend new heroes come in cards release etc it's heavily underrated. I think a lot of players, um, both from my experience, other players I've witnessed having this issue, um, like a lot of players lose matches or lose tournaments or do worse in tournaments that they shouldn't have done bad in because they're playing a hero that they're actually not that good at. <laughs> they don't understand quite enough. And you would be so surprised. I think Sam Sutherland is the perfect example of this. When someone is a true master of the hero, the way they're able to perform agnostic of the meta like whether it's the top deck in the meta, whether it's considered a you know, maybe a poor choice, like it is very surprising. They continue to do well. Um, I don't know if that's across the aggregate, if that's like the calm thing, or if Sam Sutherland is just the exception. Nevertheless, it does seem like people who are true specialists of the heroes and will sometimes play them in metas who are like, I can't believe you made that choice. They do better than the people that maybe swap last minute to some, you know, max nitro combo deck. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I wish I played the dick. But also, I, okay, that's one thing I want to say to point out this is like you just talked about, you know, specialists. And I think one thing to remember is that true specialists who succeed in this game are good at the game. Like, yeah. don't, don't worry about whether you're a specialist or not specialist. Like, you still have to be good at the game. And I think you still have to have a rounded understanding of the game. You still have to understand matchups. You still have to actually understand the game at a deeper level to be good. It's, and it, I, one thing that's really key for this, and I think this is why specialists have got a bad rap in the past, is that it isn't a crutch. Like, you can't just be like, oh, well, my hero is badly positioned right now. Like, that you're not going to get success that way, right? And I think you yeah. just said we've seen people kind of break that mold, and that's because they're good players. Yeah, I think so, at one point it probably was a crutch. Um, yes, but it shouldn't be. Yeah, but nowadays, like, I mean, there's just too much evidence of people, too much examples of people doing very well. With heroes yep. that are not respected as a top deck by most of the community and they just continue to do well so i mean i think the results speak for themselves at this point uh chandler toe winning the largest calling yeah. in history with rhino <laughs> i mean like there's just the, the list kind of goes on it's just one that just popped back into my yeah. head um we sort of said a few earlier but yeah uh, what, what about how do you how do you be a specialist like how okay i, I want to be a specialist brendan what hero do i pick and why Honestly, with most of these specialists, I think they just find something that they don't hate playing. They they like playing. I won't use the negative, but like it's an affinity. It's a fun. Yeah, they're, they. I don't know if it's like a role playing affinity, like like the hero. They just like the play style. But most of the, I mean, I think every single time actually, these players actually enjoy playing these heroes. And that's like, mm -hmm. even if Dash is not seen as the best deck in the format, or even a, like people are not even putting an A tier, S tier in their, you know, uh, super serious tier list. Stan, Sam's still going to play the hero, and I think it's because he likes it at the end of the day. I think you want to enjoy the deck. Yep, I, I agree. I think you should. I will also say, <clears throat> this is pretty important, I think you should pick a hero that's good <laughs> if you want to be a specialist. Oh, man. Okay. Kale's going to be rolling in his <laughs> when he hears this. Bravo fundamentally like has a strong card pool. Like, 
Okay, so Guardian has a strong survival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you were going to be if you're going to be a specialist, I think you've got to pick a hero or a class. And this could go as playstyle. Maybe you have an affinity for a playstyle, and that's fine. So you can play maybe a couple of heroes. But like, if you're going to go out there and be like, okay, I'm going to be a Riptide specialist. That's just trash, like because that hero sucks. So like, and maybe in the future it won't, right? Like, don't get me wrong. But if you want to go out there, you can always change. You can always become a, a dual class or a dual hero specialist or whatever, or you can change your specialty, right? But if you're thinking, okay, 2024, I want to be a, a, a one trick pony. I want to be a dedicated hero specialist. Like pick a good hero. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. there's some, there's some like pick a fundamentally strong hero, I think is where you've got to start. So, you know, there's some, there's some heroes out there that just, right now uh fundamentally very very strong so you could go out and you could pick and i will say i will admit that's closer than it ever has been i think in the past people have said oh, i'm a specialist and they've picked absolutely unplayable heroes and i'm like okay because you're going to go through the year and you might have one or two good events great but the rest of the year you're going to have misery you're going to have a terrible kind of like win-loss record and i, I ultimately i don't think you're going to enjoy it if you're trying to like become a specialist for for the reason of just being a specialist for the ease of if you if it's for other reasons like you have an affinity for this hero you just only want to play this hero whatever is fine but if you're going out there being like i want to dedicate my time to be a specialist because i think that's the right thing to do to get gain success like purely talking from a success standpoint then like make sure you pick a good hero like it's it, you don't just go and pick a hero because like i think you've got to pick right now you know i think again right now i think it's closer than it ever has been in terms of like the heroes you can pick but if we talked about this the same time last year or you know even midway through 2023 and people like yeah i'm gonna be a specialist in like any of like not jermai or icelander or um you know maybe even something like fire is probably fine but anything down further than that i was like it's just you just waste you just griefing yeah <laughs> some of the best players i know are kano specialists and they are like when i say some of the best players i know and some of the best players i think in this game and when they were special when they were just starting these tournaments out as underdogs like there's no reason yeah, just, they should be doing that they shouldn't start like these players should not be starting the tournament as an underdog and that's what it was when they were picking that deck and some of these i know that meta conditions are everything but like and most of them will tell you that they just nothing compares to the feeling of being the undefeated Kano in the tournament. There's just an aura around you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's like a, something like a chasing a high, right? Uh, no, no <laughs> seriously, every thing. single player who ints by picking Kano tournaments will tell you about, they've they've experienced that and it is something else because it is, it's cool. It feels cool to be the undefeated Kano at a tournament, but um, it's, crazy. it's a rare occurrence. <laughs> People always ask me, yeah, like what Justin at the uh, Battle Hub. That's <laughs> when someone time went, someone went undefeated. But someone, people have asked me, like, oh, you know, like why, you know, you've played, you know, you played Kano, you played Reiner, like why are you not a specialist in these heroes? Because there, there's been times where they're not good enough. Like they just aren't good enough. Like last year I played, or this year, sorry, I played predominantly Dromai, better for better or for worse. I think my reflection is about July, August, post nationals. Actually, I should have swapped. I should have followed what I thought was correct and, and moved to become more of a, a a dash guy. You know, I think that mm -hmm. would have given me a better chance at Worlds. Um, but I picked a hero that I thought was like very, very strong. I played a lot of it. I felt an affinity for the playstyle pre-tome. Just want to put that out there. <laughs> Again, screw that card. Um, and really enjoyed it and felt like it was super powerful as well. So I think it's a little bit different. Whereas, you know, as much as I'd love to play Kano or Reiner, like I don't think they've been well positioned and I don't think they're powerful enough fundamentally in this these recent metas to, to warrant spending all this time and effort on because the, the rewards won't be there, I think, um, for that that input in time. Um, last thing I want to talk about when it comes to being a specialist, Brendan, I think you really want to immerse yourself in like the discourse. And even if you're not going to take what people are saying necessarily on board, 
because you think it's incorrect or you have a different viewpoint, I still think it's good to hear it because it can give you kind of some something, some food for thought, right? So I think as much as I'd be a little bit wary, like, you know, the Fab Discord is like a place if you want to be a specialist, I think you should probably at least read it and see what people are saying because there will be some good ideas in there. You know what? For every hundred bad ideas, Brennan, I'm sure is a good idea. And <laughs> I'm not, that's not throwing shade. I just think that people say stuff for the sake of saying stuff or they want to be contrarian or they want to kind of be known for a certain thing. And sometimes these things, people get like blinders on. They're like, oh, this one thing, I'm going to make this good. And it's like, yeah, but are you really? So anyway, that's kind of what my saying, just be careful. But also, you know, there's like teams out there that are specialist teams and I think they generate some great ideas. And I think these, if you can immerse yourself in these kind of things, if you're going to be a specialist, I think it, it can benefit you a lot. But, you know, be wary. <laughs> Yeah, those Discord egos are something else. If we all lived in the Discord, we'd still be playing Talismatic Lens and Kano, let's be real. Um, they cook sometimes, I don't know. I've seen some cook takes on Discord. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, just con- like, you know, many ideas. The more ideas, the better. Um, but, yeah, I mean, some... I don't know. I, don't know. I have not I've not yet found the Discord relevant um for a hero that i actually play for heroes that i don't play that i'm new to uh definitely get a great foundation there but yeah i mean ultimately it's like i like if you have the if you have the network you should search out the players as well the players that are actually doing well with the hero because they've either done content or they're open to communication and they'll give you really really good information or you hit us up you hit up arsenal patch like dude do a deck deck with this guy he's so good all right okay yeah, well that is we'll do those but you know um yeah, I, I just think if you're going to make progress, then I, I do think taking on board, like taking for granted, like X is the best thing is just always wrong. Like there's just always ways to improve. And, and I think trying and seeking, and you might see something and be like, I've already tried that and that's fine. Or you might see something and be like, huh, interesting. Hadn't thought about it that way. Let me give it a go. Sounds bad. I'm going to give it a go. Okay, it is bad. Or actually, no, there's something here. So yeah, let's, uh, let's close up on specialists. Any predictions in 2024 for specialists? Uh, any particular heroes you think? specialists of these heroes could uh, could shine in 2024 or yeah, yeah. any kind of i actually think bravo might do well in 2024 um i think jermai's in a good position uh Fi, i would i actually think Fi will struggle because the bravo popularity will go up significantly mm-hmm. um and dash i think dash will continue to emerge as a very very good deck um those are those are sort of the few that I have my eye on, to be honest. Outside of that, I'm trying to think about specialists in other deck. Like I know there was a Reiner that almost top eight worlds. You're talking about a Reiner winning the biggest calling ever. Um, and it's about to get more support. So maybe, maybe it'll be there. I mean, the thing is, you gotta think about Bravo, right? Bravo is in a much better position than the Iceland is rotated, and it's about to get a whole new set of cards, which is insane. So I think Bravo, maybe not Bravo, actually, maybe just Guardian. It could just be Guardian mm-hmm. because it really doesn't Betsy. matter. Yeah, it could just be Betsy. Um, is looking really well positioned for the future. Well, Betsy also seems kind of very similar to Bravo. Like, we talked about heroes that by class, you know, within class are very different to each other. You know, Azalea versus Lexi, um, even Jeremiah versus Prism. You know, these heroes that can feel different within class. Betsy and Bravo aren't particularly ones that look complete, you know, look like they've got different play styles from history. They look, they look a bit more similar than some yeah. other heroes within class. I so mean, far, anyway. So yeah, far. the plus one, like, <clears throat> on Betsy, like, the plus one's pretty relevant. Because the thing about Bravo is that sometimes I know, like, okay, we talked about quantifying cards and quantifying things all throughout this podcast, but how do you quantify Dominate? 
Mm. It's pretty hard to quantify. Uh, you might try to, but it's also contextual when your opponent has in hand what they plan to block with, like etc., and how much it disrupts their turn. So it's not very quantifiable. At least Betsy, when you are paying for pseudo dominate in the form of overpower, you are getting that plus one. It does come with the condition that you need to be on a wager. Uh, that being said, I mean it could be enough to eke out Bravo because you know you get enough plus ones on relevant on hit effects. It's better than not having plus ones. So yeah, I'm not sure, but it looks. I think the Guardian's in a really in a really good position. All right, well, that's it. Uh, specialists in 2024, why don't you take us out of the pod room? Well, if you're listening to this and you enjoy it, uh, number one thing you can do is leave us a review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. There's a video version of this on YouTube at youtube.com slash Arsenal Pass. We're both on Twitter, BrendanEPG, Fian underscore Dale. Big shout out to all the Arsenal Pass patrons um, just helping us do what we do as we close in. As we're pretty, getting pretty close to three years here, which is actually pretty crazy. Um, so, yeah, appreciate you all. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you next week. See you later.